Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. All righty then, let's get to it. Today we're talking about a subject that we cover, I would say a couple times a year, maybe a little bit more, because it's not a subject that we like talking about, but yet the more we talk about it and the more familiar with it we become, the easier it may get and the more joyful the process of moving through one's life to the exit door it may become. Today, we're talking about death is but a dream, finding hope and meaning at life's end. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Kerr. He is CEO and Chief Medical Officer at Hospice Buffalo. Born and raised in Toronto, Kerr earned his MD as well as PhD in neurobiology and completed his residency in internal medicine at the University of Rochester. Dr. Kerr's research has received international attention and has been featured in the New York Times, Atlantic Monthly, and BBC. And he is in the house with me today to talk about his new book. And I'm actually really excited to approach this subject matter from a very unique angle. Here this show talks about happiness and human flourishing. And one does not think of that, Chris, does one at the end of life necessarily, but yet it relates and it's important. Yeah, actually, that, that that's part of the problem is we, we view dying mostly in its physical dimensions and in terms of grief or loss. And that's actually what propelled the work was a learning that there was this other aspect to it. There was the experience of dying. If we view it in terms of medical failure or organ failure, then it's empty. But there's another side. There's actually the experience of it. And you approach this from a very clinical perspective or a research-based uh, perspective in, in how you share the information in your book, Death is But a Dream. Yeah, very quickly. I, I came from the acute side of medicine. I was I was a cardiology fellow just moonlighting in 1999 at hospice. I was struck by a number of things. One is how little I knew about actually being present at the bedside. But the other was that my colleagues in other disciplines had a deep sense that patients had subjective experiences at the end of life. And when I tried to teach that to others, medical students or residents, uh, it was met with a lot of resistance because there was no evidence and we live in an evidence-based world. So initially, um, I did the research to make the case uh, because nobody had ever applied any rigor to this. And what we did is we asked patients in our initial study every day until death, uh, a standardized questionnaire in terms of what they were experiencing. And um, we also videotaped patients. Um, which is actually interesting because that's now part of the material that's on a Netflix and full documentary on the topic. But that's where this grew from. And um, then it was published in the medical journals and didn't receive a single response. And then it went outside, sn snuck into the internet and um, ended up 
getting an international response, um, which is telling because there's a big difference between the people who are providing the care and receiving care. And to the people who receive care, this matters a great deal. What's interesting about what you just shared is when we look at the difference culturally in America or North America in general about death and dying, and we look to other parts of the world, that process of life is part of the human and daily experience. Whereas here it's feared, it's handed off to someone else. We're at arm's distance from it. Yeah. Somebody wrote that, you know, death in a a hospital has a whiff of an industrial accident. It's (laughs) it's treated as (laughs) medical failure. And it's also, while that's true, it's also a closing of a life. And it's a much more human experience than it is an organ failure experience. The person who's dying doesn't think of it in terms of those dimensions of failing parts. They think of it from a very interesting vantage point that's reflective and introspective and turns out very positive for most people. Well, it can be. I think of Baba Ram Das, who died recently, and his journey, you know, towards the end of his life, and how much more circumspect he became, if that's even possible, because he was he was so long before he had his stroke and got ill. But the approach to death for the patient, you know, through the form of dreams, let's say you write about this in the book, and I would love for you to share a little bit of um, uh, insight into this. Sure. Uh, so basically what we did is we, we started off by, you know, this has been written about again in the humanities, but not looked through through a medical lens or legitimized. Um, so what we did is we, we, we started to document these and put some rigor to them and found that people, as they approached death, were having an escalating frequency of very intense uh, pre-death dreams or visions, and that there were certain themes. And as they got closer to death, they were predominantly of those they loved. Mm. And interestingly, edited out people who withheld or conditioned love or harmed them. And that when we rated comfort and realism, those were the events that gave the greatest number of greatest comfort and greatest sense of realism. Um, So that there was this trajectory that was very positive and actually none of it denied dying. All of it, though, affirmed having lived and lessened the fear of dying consequently. So I want to just go back to what you say about these pre-death dreams and the, the content of the dreams themselves or the visions and the loved ones. Are they loved ones that are present on the earth or are they about where they are going to? It, it changes over time. And there's actually, you can almost, there's a prognostic predictor to it. So as you get closer, the presence of the deceased increases almost exponentially. Um, and, and, and that comes within weeks before dying. Interesting. So there's, there's this change. And that's actually what started it, was the nurses saying they were making predictive estimates of somebody's proximity to death based on seeing deceased loved ones. And that's actually what drove the first study. It was kind of my disbelief, but it turned out to be true. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Many years ago, when I was a very, very, very young girl, I had the great fortune of participating in the caretaking of a 99-year-old woman until her death. And about, I would say, two weeks before her death, she started having They were like daydreams or uh, hallucinations of seeing her deceased sister. 
and going to meet her at the train. And she would say, I'm coming, Ada, I'm coming. And she would tell me, okay, honey, I'm ready to go see Ada. And I would tell her, are you sure? Are you sure you're ready to go? And, and what you describe is exactly what I witnessed. No, that's what you're describing is perfect. What's interesting about what you said is that uh, between 30 and 40 percent of people also have dreams of travel or preparing to go. Yeah. So <laughs> the amount of times I've heard trains, planes, canoes, whatever, uh, packing in bags. So, yeah, that, that you, you got both of them. This idea of reunion to critical people, and there's usually only a few, very little is said between them, but everything's understood. This idea of going, and they come out of these experiences, and they're not asking questions or asking for validation. They're telling you, this is what I did um, in a very matter-of-fact way. So it's very experiential and very felt, and to them, very real. We actually measured realism on a 1 to 10 Likert scale, and, you know, they're 10 out of 10. This happened. Using the term dreams is actually difficult because they're emphatic that these aren't like other dreams, and people will say, I don't normally remember my dreams. This was different, but that's the only reference point we have. Well, it makes a good case for the spiritual life, if you want to call it spiritual life, or the other other dimension, you know, the element of quantum physics that plays into this experience. And you've studied a lot of people. This is 1,400 patients. It's not a handful. No, yeah, no, it's not. A lot of folks. And what do they say, or how do they relate their experiences to their, their timelines, if you will, or their relationship with source, whatever one wants to call it? You know, they, that's an interesting thing. So one of the things we were really very disciplined about doing was we weren't looking at it as a keyhole into the afterlife or the paranormal. We simply wanted to understand the dying experience from using their words uh, and their language. And interestingly, they don't editorialize off of it. It's a very matter of fact telling. Basically, just how you described it. This woman said to you, hey, I'm seeing my sister. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and and she didn't describe it, probably didn't describe it as ethereal. This is just what happened. Very matter of fact. You know, if you think about it, the time for analysis and therapy is over. Yeah. <laughs> They're dying. At least in this and, go and, around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, they, they, that's how they, it's just, um, it's a new reality for them. And the same, but a little bit different, occurs in the event that it's a younger person, right? There's a little bit of different attitude, would you say? Or is it the same kind of behavior? Same and different road. So children obviously don't have all the language or reference points in and around mortality or death. And God, there's a chapter on this in the book. And in two of the three cases, I mean, they didn't know anyone who had died, and but they knew animals that had and so their dreams were populated by animals they had known, pets or neighbors, pets, what have you, um, who returned to them. And they're, they're in their own language, what the children tell us, and they, these are on videos you can see online, is that you know that uh, I'm not alone. Uh, I'm loved. I'm going to be okay, um, which is remarkable. And the one young lady, as she got closer, she was 13, her her fear was, who am I, what am I without my mother? Oh. And her mother 
Robert's best friend had died many years earlier. And in the dream, she sees her um, mother uh, in her mother's room playing with her curtains, fixing her curtains. So, you know, it, whatever the fear, the injury seems to be, seems to be addressed. And sometimes that's to be forgiven. There's more than a few cases where uh, a mother or father had a child that you know, ended up in jail or addicted or complicated in some way. And you know, their parents come back to them and, and say, you know, you were a good parent. So there's a lot of reassurance. Yeah. And this is where I think this, the notion of post-traumatic growth, which we're going to take a break, but when we come back, I'd like to weave these principles of positive psychology and post-traumatic growth into the story. And in fact, have you share some of the stories that you write about in Death is But a Dream. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Christopher Kerr. To learn more about his work, please visit his website. And I'm going to get that data for you right now. Please visit drchristopherkerr.com. On Twitter, you can connect with him through Hospice Buffalo on Facebook. It's also Hospice Buffalo. And on Instagram, that handle is Hospice Buffalo. We're talking about his new book, Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we are back continuing the conversation with Dr. Christopher Kerr. We're talking about understanding the mysteries of death and life after life. Let's get back to the conversation. So Chris, as you interviewed the people who participated in your study, there were 1,400 patients and their families that you collected data about. And I'd love for you to share a couple of stories that really speak to this notion of post-traumatic growth and maybe even reconciliation at the end of one's life. Sure. Uh, yeah, there's some, there's, there's just, they're just remarkable, profound stories. Um, one of the early patients that's described in the book is Mary, who's in her eighth decade, nearing the end of her life. And she is holding a baby that nobody sees that she refers to as Danny, cuddling and kissing him. And her four children don't understand the reference. Mm. And then the next day, her sister came in um, from out of state and um, immediately knew. And she said, well, Danny was actually her first child who was stillborn. And the injury had been so deep, she was never able to talk about it during her life. Um, but here she is at the end of her life and the injuries being addressed. And what was remarkable was she was so clearly at peace and comforted. And that's really the, the take home from this is that they're, they're inherently therapeutic. Um, remarkable stories. And what about Dwayne? I think his story is fascinating. Yeah, Dwayne is interesting. He's actually featured in the documentary. So you can see, I think, part of his videos online. He was in his 40s, and he had been in prison more than out. Um, he was addicted. 
Uh, he'd actually murdered two people in self-defense and uh, lived on the streets. He ended up with head and neck cancer. And he had one of those lives. He really couldn't look backwards. He's just trying to survive. And then he started to experience dreams where he was being stabbed at the site of his cancer by everyone he harmed. And wow. about 17% <laughs> about 17% of the people who we in our studies are having distressing dreams. But what we got wrong was it's not as simple as that. And some of the most distressing dreams are actually the most transformative. So he wakes up and he had a powerful need to reconcile with a daughter. We get her here. And for the first time, he says, you know, I'm sorry. Um, mm. And I love you. And then she spent the remaining weeks at his bedside and he was able to sleep. But, you know, he, he got there th through the side door, but he got there. And so the distressing ones are often the most meaningful. We've had uh, World War II veterans with severe uh, PTSD who really couldn't verbalize the, their damage. Um, and one of the most more interesting ones is a gentleman who was on an Omaha Beach invasion and um the the soldier comes to him on the beach and says, you know, we're coming for you. And then he got to relive in his dream the day he got his discharge papers. And then he could sleep. Wow. So they're very, very meaningful. And they seem to address the individual's very specific need, um, whether it's to be loved, reunited, forgiven, etc. From what you describe and from what I've seen in my own story, well, the one that I shared with you, is that this sense of um, peace, safety, the absence of fear, actually. Yeah, that's, that's probably the most striking thing. The other is that these are more than just felt events, that when we looked at them using inventories for post-traumatic growth. So if we look at, at dying as, as a trauma, what we found was people who were having these experiences actually showed uh, in every category post-traumatic growth. The most significant were in personal strength, spiritual change. So in other words, it's interesting that they're physically dying, but psychologically or spiritually, they're actually adapting, they're gaining insight, and it's all positive. Now there's a flourishing right up until their day. Right there's a flourishing yeah. that happens at the at, at the end like almost like the um like a lightning bolt of energy that propels propels them t to the end with grace. So, yeah, and it's a remarkable statement um, about the human condition. And it, it's interesting it's just the same as how the book came about and really all the other studies and, and documentary one is everybody who was approached wanted to participate. Yeah. Um, no matter how they appeared and no matter how their days were numbered, the importance of having relevance and having meaning and connectivity is something that's persistent right up until the end. I mean, there's no secondary gain, no future gain. It's just they needed to matter. In the moment, very, very much yeah, concretely in, in, in the present moment for whatever that moment was or yes. is. Yes, yes. And yes. maybe that is the that is the big takeaway for the living, you know, through through your research and through the book. It is about that awareness of the preciousness of time, which is obvious, but what we do with that time. Yeah. And there's huge implications um, for the bereaved. So we've surveys on like 770 bereaved family members. And what's good for the patient is good for the those left behind. 
And we've used grief scales and shown that those people whose loved ones had these experiences actually grieve differently because it recontextualizes loss. How we die and how you see your loved one die matters in terms of how you experience grief. Um, if you see them reunited with a lost spouse or child or parent and they're comforted and they have meaning, that, that redefines um, how, they, how they left us and that affects your grief. I have a friend who is a, a very old time hospice care worker. She has a practice. She's involved with the Death Cafe movement and she also mm-hmm. considers herself a death doula. And she often speaks about, you know, dying the good death, that at the end of the day, you know, it's writing that movie ending for yourself, whatever that looks like in terms of reconciliation or acceptance when there can be no reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we, we all find our own way there. But yeah, it's, it's some sort of peace. No, it's really my, my way I think of it, it's more being made whole. You know, everybody's injured for having lived in some form or fashion, and uh, that's, that's often addressed. <laughs> that's often that's often what gets addressed at the end of one's life. And um, you know, to, to die means really to be able to sleep, and it means we think of it in terms of physical comfort, but it's really more about psychological comfort. And that's why people often hang on till they hear that one voice, uh, or somebody comes in from out of town or yeah. somebody's birthday or graduation, it it's really is ve- being able to be put back together in order to let go. How has your approach to life been altered by this experience, by the years of this work? You know, I, the thing that most people get wrong about this is that we're a depressed uh, – we have almost 500 people who work here, and almost every employee – comes in with an expectation that this is, oh boy, this is going to be grim and is shocked by the humor, the warmth uh, that exists in our community who do this work. I think what it is, is that there's certainly tragedy and some deaths are obviously more tragic than others when they're particularly when they're young, but we also see the best side of humanity, particularly in the caregivers, the selflessness the courage, the strength they find, the love, because what matters most for having lived comes to the surface. And uh, we see acts of kindness that are just uh, remarkable. All else seems to fade and, and the best of people uh, emerges. And so we're privileged really just to be part of their stories. And so it's, it's more uplifting actually, and it's more hopeful despite what people would think. Has it changed the way you view or experience happiness or contentment? I'm sure it has, but I don't know how to put definition around it. I I know there are certain things about me, I think, from having done this work. It's hard to change gears. Uh, You know, you don't go and sit well after so it's important for me to act, be active, and I live on a working horse farm, so it's important for me to be in the natural world. It's, it, it, to come out of this is equally important, and I think we all find things to do that. Yeah, I, I really appreciate what you just said, you know, that to, you know to, to be out in the world, to be active, to find light on the other side of the darkness, and to see light even in the darkness, right? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. And conversely, you know, I, I don't watch tragic movies. <laughs> I, you know, uh, like I just, I, I don't even, I don't even consciously do it. I just know that I don't go there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think it affects us in ways that we don't know, but your, your DNA is altered somewhere. Well, you write in the book about the paradox of this, this dying process that while the body is physically deteriorating, the emotional and spiritual life is very much alive, if not becoming enlightened. Oh, absolutely. And what is fascinating is, you know, those of us who are living and really can't even face the idea of our mortality, we, we relate to this idea of do not go gently into the night, you know, fight, fight, fight. But when you watch the videos of the patients um, who are facing death and going through this, they're not saying that at all. No. So, so what's, what's what the end in the end, what seems to happen is, is a lot of the fear fades. With that comes the acceptance and the ability to make the passage without resistance. Yeah. 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 Yeah, without resistance is a good way to describe it. We are out of time. And I really thank you for coming to, to speak with me about your book, Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End. And I urge our listeners to have these kinds of conversations with the people that you love, because when you when you do so, when you sit down and talk about what it could look like at the end or what you want it to look like at the end, it's actually quite uplifting and connecting mm -hmm. intimate in it, yeah. right i mean it's a very intimate yeah. way to talk about life with the people we love very much so and the people yeah. that matter dr christopher kerr thank you again for joining us to learn more My about privilege. chris's work please visit drchristopherkerr.com on twitter at hospice buffalo and facebook and instagram are also both hospice buffalo we'll be right back here comes that pause. We'll be right back and we'll continue the conversation with my next guest, Mike Anthony. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. are back continuing the exploration of the great mysteries of death and life after life. Where is it that we go when we're done here? My next guest is Mike Anthony. He's been a professional actor and non-professional bartender since he graduated from Wayne State University with a Master's of Arts degree in theater. Beyond his life in theater, Mike's journey took an unexpected turn when his dad passed leading him down a remarkable path of discovery. He now spends a good portion of his time exploring evidence suggestive of the survival of consciousness beyond the demise of the physical body. Yep, 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 that's true. And Mike has also been part of the Netflix series Surviving Death. He's an interesting character because his office is in the theater. His office is in the very theater where Hamilton is produced. And right now, Mike, I want to welcome you because you've had an interesting year to say the least. 
Hi, Lisa. Yes, I have. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited that you're you're here because I get to talk about a subject that personally interests me. Although we stay out of the woo-woo on this show, this to me is woo-woo, a little tiny bit of woo-woo, but really blending science and and so many other aspects of the human condition. You've written a couple of books. The first one was Life at Hamilton. Sometimes you throw away your shot only to find your story. And the second book, which we're talking about today, is Love, Dad, How My Father Died Then Told Me He Didn't. How did you step onto this path? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You could not write two books that are that are more different. Uh, and both books were surprises in my life. You know, like you said, I'd gone to college initially to be a teacher, a science teacher, and but I'd always done acting as well and ended up moving to New York City to become an actor. And then like most actors took a, a day job, quote unquote, which was bartending for the Nederlander theaters on Broadway. And then I've been doing that now for 14 years, which is impossible to believe. And for the past six years or so, I'd been the manager, the bar manager for um, the bar at the Richard Rogers Theater where Hamilton performed. So that's and then I had some amazing experiences and started sharing those stories on Facebook. And then and then people uh, they they went sort of viral uh, and it was suggested they be collected in, into a book. And so that's where the first book came from. And then meanwhile, uh, in the background, uh, my, my dad passed away 10 years ago. And uh, when I was not bartending at Hamilton, I was spending my uh, hours outside of the theater investigating the possibility of life after death. Uh, and to my shock, there was a lot of um, science that was out there uh, that that has been done with regard to this question. And I want to say you're also making your own documentary about, about this subject that you've been working on for a few years. And I, I've watched several of the clips and I encourage people to, to go to your website, MikeAnthony.com and check them out because they're very interesting. Yeah, after my dad passed, I started having these incredible experiences that I could not explain away and uh, involving mostly mediumship, uh, people who claim the ability to, you know, communicate in some way with our deceased loved ones. Um, and I started to make a documentary about it. I mean, that's how astounding uh, what was happening was that I, I, I ended up turning on a camera and, and putting it on film. So talk about the introduction to mediumship, because you were not the one that was curious about it. Your dad died. It was a shock to you and your family. And then something happened. Yeah, it's something it, mediumship was something I was vaguely aware of from the show Crossing Over with John Edward, uh, which a lot of people might remember. And and now there's, you know, the Long Island medium. And there are a few shows on popular television now about mediumship. That was really all that I knew about it. And, um, you know, I had initially gone to college to be a science teacher. Right. So science has always been a part of my life. It's something I've always loved. And the mainstream materialistic uh, scientific paradigm says that when we die that is the end, period, right? What we think of as consciousness and, and, and self is an illusion created by chemical reactions happening in the brain. And when oxygen is no longer going to the brain, those chemical reactions stop, and that's the end of the story. That was what was on my mind when my dad suddenly and shockingly died. Um, and I was being crushed by those thoughts. You know, the, my dad was this amazing man uh, and the, the, just the center of our family, and, and we were shattered when he died. And, and the, the 
the everything that my professors had taught me in biology um, hit me like a like a ton of bricks, and the thought that he was forever gone was just crushing. And and then out of the blue, a complete stranger, a person we have to this day never met in person, a woman who calls herself a medium, contacted my family to say that my father, who was also a stranger to her, uh, was tapping her on the shoulder out of body, desperate to get a message to his family that he had survived the death of his body. Uh, that a phone call <laughs> came. Wow. Crazy. It, it totally, it was only like a couple of days after we buried him, this phone call came into my mom's house um, and it was the surprise of a lifetime. And and that is how my, my uh, relationship with the idea of mediumship began. Amazing. That is amazing. And then from there... Take us down the path a little bit further. Yeah. Well, she, this woman, I ended up talking with her for a long time. Uh, and frankly, what I wanted to first figure out was, is she crazy? Does she want money from us? You know, what, what is this? Um, and I very quickly came to the conclusion that she was not crazy. She seemed to me like this very loving, compassionate woman. There was never any money exchanged, by the way. There was never any question of that. She simply... To me, it felt like she absolutely believed what she was saying, that she had this dead guy desperate to let me know, to let his son and his family know that he was okay. Um, so through another uh, series of events, my sister contacted a person who calls herself a professional evidential medium, right? And that meaning that they're able to get evidential information from our deceased loved ones to let us know that it really is them that that is coming through. And she hired this woman to come to our house and uh, I decided to test her. So I, I spoke to my dad uh, all by myself in his house, which was like in the middle of the woods. And uh, I said, dad, if this is real, I need you to deliver me this very specific message. I came up with a code word for him to, to say. <laughs> I remember. And, yeah. And, uh, and at the end of the reading, Sure enough, she said the code word. She looked right at me and she said, your dad wants to talk about your hair and hair. My hair was the subject, was the code phrase uh, that I had given him. And on top of that, everything else she said was remarkably accurate as well. So I, I could not – the scientific part of my brain – of course, I desperately wanted to believe that this was my dad somehow giving evidence that he'd survived. But the scientific part of my brain would not let me have it. It would just not let me have it. Um, and then about a year later, I called the woman back and I said, look, I need to know that what you're doing doing is real. Um, I need to test you and I want to do it on camera. I want you to let me film you doing this with total strangers that I'm going to bring to you. So I will know without a doubt, there's no way you can be cheating. And to my very great surprise, she immediately said yes, that she would do that. And so that's how I started making the documentary, bringing total strangers to her. I turned the camera on, sat her down and then walked in total strangers. And in the book, Love Dad, I go over 10 of the, uh, readings that we've had. I've now done like 20 with her. And the information that was coming through, there's, there's simply no way for, to, to explain how she was getting the information. And uh, sorry, go ahead. going to just say, clarify. In other words, she had no access to their name. She had no information about who they are so she could do a dive on, uh, on the internet. It, these were cold readings, right? I, this is what I saw when I watched these videos. These men and women are coming in, they're sitting down, and boom, it's happening. Oh. 
That's right. Completely cold. She had absolutely – she didn't know if she was going to be sitting with a man or a woman but until the person walked in the room. She – they were complete strangers. They could have been anyone in the world. And then what happened? And she she started coming up with information that there's no way she could have gotten by normal means. A lot of specific information. J- just to give you an example, okay? I think I have uh, this maybe in one of the videos on the website. There was a young girl who was sitting. And, and by the way, by the end of this experiment, I kept on increasing the level of control on the experiment, right? So at first, she was sitting face-to-face with these people. So then I'm thinking, well, maybe she's an amazingly good cold reader. Uh, people, The main, mainstream scientific world believes that there's no such thing as mediumship. So anyone who claims to be doing this has to be cheating. That's what the mainstream scientific world says. And one of the ways they they cheat is by something called cold reading, which means they're just really good at picking up on visual cues um, that we give off, uh, often without our knowledge. Um, and they use that information to create the illusion that they're talking to our dead loved ones when really they're not at all. Um, so uh, in a later version of the experiment, I ended up putting up a, uh, a wall between the medium and the person. So then she never even saw the person. And then after that, I made it so that the person wasn't able to talk. So they were answering simply by pressing a button that said yes, no, or maybe, and it lit up on the medium side of the uh, divide. So the medium was not seeing or hearing the person they were giving a reading for, okay? Now, under those conditions, here's an example of the type of information she was able to get. Uh, I had a young woman whose brother passed away in um, an accident when his car rolled over and exploded on the highway. Yeah, right now. So that's a, obviously a terrible way to go. Um, and, and, and it's rather rare for someone to die in an explosion like that. That's not a typical way to die. If, you, if you're a medium, um, that would be a low percentage guess, right? To say, hey, I think do you have a, a fr- someone who, who died in, a, in an explosion? You'd be much better to say, did someone have like heart issues maybe? You know, that's a much more high percentage guess. So this woman, uh, Angelina, says to this young lady almost immediately – at the at almost within 30 seconds of the reading beginning she says i'm i'm smelling gasoline someone close to you died in an explosion wow. and, and yeah i mean the chances of that being her first guess because again according to mainstream science this woman has to be guessing that's the only right. explanation according to science for that to be her first guess the, the, you know, I tried to do some statistical analysis on, on the readings. The, the odds are incredibly low. And not only that, she then ended up getting that this was someone who was like a father to this young girl. And it was. It was her, her older brother who died when she was only a baby and he was 19 years old. And she told us before the reading that he was like a father to her. So that's just an example of the sort of specific information um, this woman, her name is Angelina Diana, was able to come up with even even under conditions where the normal access to information was controlled for. Wow. Let's take a break. Let's ask everybody to hang on to their seats and their hats because we're going to take a pause and we'll come back and we'll continue the conversation with Mike Anthony about his book, Love, Dad, How My Father Died, Then Told Me He Didn't. To learn more about Mike, his work, the Netflix series, his own documentary, please visit MikeAnthony.com. On Facebook and Instagram, you can find him at MikeAnthony91. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble. 
Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with Mike Anthony, we're demystifying death and life after life. Where is it that we go when we're done here? Let's get back to it. And Mike, let's go back to the story because your dad passed suddenly. You were taken down a a completely different path in your life in terms of curiosity, research, interests, and, and education. And now here you are researching this subject heretofore, which is the great unknown. Yeah, yeah. I just want to clarify and say I'm not a scientist. My master's degree is in is in theater, right? Uh, I did go to co- undergrad. I was studying science because I had intended to be a high school science teacher. So when I started doing these experiments with this medium and I started getting the uh, results I was getting – that's exactly was my thought. Well, I am not the person who should be investigating this. This is one of the most important questions that faces humanity, right? It As one scientist told me uh, in one study, death was found to affect 10 out of 10 people. So it's obviously a subject that, that, that has great weight for every single person on the planet. And when I was starting to see the things that I was seeing, it very quickly occurred to me that someone smarter than me should be investigating this stuff, given the import of this question, right? Given the very deep, profound nature of this question. And I was very surprised to find that when I started to do some investigation, I found that science has been done for many, many, many years into the question of mediumship and by some of the brightest scientists to ever walk the planet. Uh, back at the turn of the of the century, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, that's when, when uh, mediumship was really beginning to take off. And some of the the brightest scientists of the day, uh, something founded a, a group called the the S- Society for Psychical Research out of London, and then there was a sister organization, the American Society for Psychical Research here in uh, America. And these scientists, uh, there was, for instance, a guy named William James, who's considered to be the founder of psychology. Uh, he founded the the first psychology department at Harvard University. Um, you know, so these guys were intellectual heavyweights. These people who were looking into this stuff. And almost all of them came to the conclusion after decades of intense research that some people are able to get information in a way that science does not yet understand. And then I was even more surprised to find contemporary studies going on, studies going on right now. Uh, For instance, at the University of Virginia, uh, the University of Arizona, uh, currently right now at this moment, there's research happening at some place called the Winbridge Research Center um, that's doing fabulous work, a a woman named Dr. Julie Beischel, who is heading up that research. And um, yeah, so it wasn't just me, just this bartender, you know, at his mom's house coming across this information. (laughs) 
there were real scientists out there for a hundred years now that have uh, come to the conclusion something genuine sometimes happens with mediumship. I mean, I, I have a big wow, lots of questions, huge curiosity. Um, tell us a few more stories. I mean, you, you write about the metamorphosis of BS, and we have to use the BS because otherwise I'll get bleeped and, <laughs> and, and slapped on the hand by our station manager at the terrestrial radio station. So be kind to me. BS. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, the metamorphosis of, of BS is that's the title of one of the chapters in the book. And the title comes from uh, the idea of a butterfly, right, which metamorphoses from, from, from a, a, a caterpillar into a into a butterfly. And uh, the very popular magic duo, Penn and Teller, are well-known skeptics of the paranormal. And that means anything paranormal. Uh, it's their their personal belief that there is no such thing as anything paranormal whatsoever. And they're very smart guys, by the way. I've met them. Uh, Penn and Teller, both of them, are very brilliant people. And this really bothered me uh, as I was doing my own experiments. Why was it that some of the very smartest people that I'm aware of tell me that this stuff is impossible? You know, what is it that I am missing? Uh, I'm a guy of average intelligence. There are some people way brighter than me out there saying that there is nothing to what I'm finding and that I must be being duped in some way, right? That's, that's what the, the mainstream uh, uh, version of the story is. So Penn and Teller, uh, they had a show on Showtime called BS, right? Except they used the full, the full words. Um, and they used it to debunk anything, quote unquote, paranormal. And they focused very heavily on mediumship. Their belief that b because they believe there is no such thing as mediumship, they they believe, therefore, anyone professing to be a medium who is taking money for that, they think that they are vampires preying on grieving people. They think that they are just morally, completely morally bankrupt people uh, who are uh, who are evil, really, uh, and preying on people who are uh, at a low point in their lives. And I understand them believing that, given how certain they are that there is no such thing as anything paranormal. So in their show, uh, they, they in their magic show, they came to the Marquee Theater on Broadway, which is one of the theaters that I work for, and they had a bit called The Psychic Comedian in, the, <laughs> in their show. And in that show, they do a bit of mentalism. And mentalism is an amazing uh, form of entertainment where someone creates the illusion that they are reading minds, okay? But they are very upfront about the fact that it is an illusion. They are using trickery and various means to make it look like they're getting information in some anomalous way that we can't explain, but they aren't. They're using magic. They're using sleight of hand as well as some other techniques. Um, and Penn and Teller, when they did this trick, I went, when I went to watch it, I was standing in the back of the theater. It was amazing. I was blown away. It really does give the illusion that they are reading minds. <sighs> So it, it crushed me because by that point in my, in my journey, I had really concluded that this woman, Angelina, was, was somehow connecting with people who are no longer in a body. I mean, it really seemed to me like that was the most likely explanation. But once I saw Penn and Teller do this trick, I, I was like, oh my God, maybe Angelina is just doing whatever it is these guys are doing. Now, that was hard for me to imagine because Penn and Teller have honed their craft over decades, right? They, they have spent a lifetime and uncountable hours 
learning how to do what they do. Angelina had a full-time job for years before she became, uh, before she went full-time into mediumship. It was hard to imagine how she could have, um, on the side, become this expert, absolutely expert uh, mentalist who could somehow do this even when there was a screen in front of her and she wasn't hearing any voices. Um, but I, I still, I was crestfallen after watching this trick, thinking maybe my dad has not been communicating with this woman. Maybe oh. I've been duped, right? So I decided to go back the next night because I just wanted to try to see if there was anything I could figure out about how they were doing what they were doing. Now, but before I tell this last part, I'll say that uh, by this point, my dad had been passed for about five years, and butterflies had become a significant sign in my life by that point. Now, of course, skeptics say that I am not now seeing more butterflies than I was before. I'm simply now assigning a meaning to the, the butterflies. Uh, the brain does something called patternicity. The brain is this amazing machine, right? It truly is amazing. It fills in information that isn't fully there um, for, for various reasons uh, that have evolved over the millions of years of brains evolving. Um, and I am aware of all of that. I just say that to let people know that I am absolutely aware of what the skeptics will say about my associating butterflies with meaning. Okay, I, I get it. That said, I had seen butterflies in some strange places since my dad's passing, uh, and and at times that were very significant. That for me, it stretched um, the odds that it, it stretched credulity to think that it could be totally coincidence that I was seeing those butterflies at that time. Okay, so anyway, I go back this next night to to watch Penn and Teller to do this uh, trick again. And there he's giving the same opening speech that opens up the bit where he's, where he's hammering away at how evil mediums are and how there is no such thing as anything paranormal. And he says the words exactly the same as he had the night before. Everything you're about to see is B S and he pauses before the, between the, the B and the S for effect. And Lisa in that pause, I'm inside the Marquee Theater, which is inside the Marquee Hotel, right? In that pause between B and S, I see a flutter up in the lights. Wow. And it's, of course, it's a butterfly. And it's such a big butterfly, it starts flapping around the theater and other people are seeing it. So there's this little wave of, ooh, ah, you know, throughout the audience as this butterfly flaps around. Because to see a butterfly inside a Broadway theater is a very rare thing. Yeah. In my 15 years at this point of working on Broadway, I had ne I'd never seen a butterfly before. And again, the Marquee Theater is inside the Marquee Hotel. You have to go inside the doors on the street level, up an escalator, inside other doors that lead to the theater, and then to another set of doors that go into the actual house where the theater is. So it, it's like this crazy maze to get into the theater. And the moment that it appeared was as he was saying, everything you're about to see is BS. So that felt incredibly significant to me. And then just a day or so after that, uh, I'm back at my theater now at Hamilton, the Richard Rogers Theater, and I'm telling my friend Marie uh, what happened. And I'm saying, asking her if she had ever seen a butterfly in a theater before. And she said, no, she hadn't. And then I'm saying, you know, I really feel like this could be some kind of a communication from my dad, letting me know that Penn is wrong when he says everything that you're seeing here is BS. And as I'm telling this, saying this to Marie, Again, I see a flutter out of the corner of my eye, and now there's a butterfly in my theater. Whoa. It, it, yeah, it lands up in a chandelier. In the book, I have some photographs of people, of my coworkers looking up at this butterfly. And when you see the look of surprise on their faces, they don't even know the story 
about my connection to butterflies and my dad, the look you see on their faces is simply their surprise at seeing a butterfly at all inside a Broadway theater. In the um, middle of New York City. <laughs> in the middle of New York, in the middle of Times Square. Right. Where, not not a, in the park where you might no. expect to see one. But yeah, yeah, I get I get it. I get it. I'm with you. Yeah. So and that that's what I mean by the metamorphosis of BS, because it was like my dad was taking Penn's very uh, stance against and turning it into a pro. You know, he was he was using Penn to tell against me, himself against himself. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's how it felt. This is, I mean, this is such a fascinating topic. And I, 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 I do love talking with guests like yourself because it expands our minds, right? We, many of us believe if we can't quantify it, right? If we can't put a formula to it, then it cannot be so. And what you're saying, this is what I glean from what you're saying is there are certain things that we really can't quantify. They, they exist. There's, there's no full explanation or scientific reasoning, although there's scientific research being done that supports that there is something out there that we cannot see, right? Mm -hmm. We just haven't figured mm -hmm. out how to measure it. Yeah. I mean, and, and, but actually some of it has been quantified and, and that's what's, was most surprising to me. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, off air, you and I were talking about a book called Phenomena by Annie Jacobson, which I highly recommend Love. to everyone. Yep. Fantastic <laughs> book. Fantastic and, book. Yeah. And uh, one of the things she focuses on is the United States government's research into psychic ability. And uh, the CIA has recently declassified these documents, by the way. So you can go yourself to the CIA website and go to their library and you can look at these documents for yourself. And I put some pictures in my own book about some of this research into a guy named Uri Geller, right? Uri yes. Geller, a lot of people think that he's a complete fake and a fraud and Penn and Teller are hugely skeptical of him. And they say that he's absolutely lying to you. But if you read the research that was done on Uri Geller at the Stanford Research Institute, which is what Annie, Annie Jacobson's book is about, there's no way to explain away some of the stuff that he did. There is no way to explain it away. And it was so amazing that the, the CIA's official stance, which you can read in their documents on their website, is that psychic ability is a real thing. And not only is it a real thing, the CIA and the United States government has used um, remote viewers, people they call remote viewers, basically clairvoyance, psychics who can see things that are are not in front of them. They have used them in operational ways. They've used yes, them in operation for decades. For decades. Uh, so, and, the, Mike, I want to jump in because I want to add a couple more things. It's not just the United States. It's China. Oh, yeah. It's the former Soviet Union. That there, there were psychic wars going on mm -hmm. at one time. Absolutely. The whole reason that America got involved is because Russia was doing it first and we got wind of that. And we thought, well, you know, maybe we, there must be something to this if Russia's spending time and money on it. And then sure enough, we found that there definitely is something to it. So yeah, there, there is quantifiable evidence out there. And if we look into mediumship right now, um, they, we use data, we use a statistical analysis. I mean, it's highly complicated math, right? It's very complicated if you get into the high end of uh, statistics. But the math is showing us the same math that tells us whether or not you know saturated fat is is a danger a danger to our cardiovascular system the same statistical analysis tells us that anomalous information reception which is the scientific way of of saying it uh, is a real and genuine phenomenon we are out of time so i wanted you to come back like when when the movie when as you progress on sure. the movie come back and share more and we'll We'll do more on this subject because I do think people are interested, even if they won't cop to it. It's like, 
All right. Tell me more. You know, there's always this innate yeah. curiosity about the subject. I want to give your website again. It's MikeAnthony.com. On Facebook, you could find Mike at MikeAnthony91. On Instagram, also MikeAnthony1. We've been talking about one of his books today, Love Dad, How My Father Died, Then Told Me He Didn't. Um, Mike has been featured on, in the Netflix series, Surviving Death. He's making his own documentary film, there are several videos on his website that are really fascinating. And I encourage our listeners to go there and have a look. And I just want to thank you for sharing part of your afternoon with me. This has been amazing. Uh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest, Dr. Christopher Kerr and Mike Anthony, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember... Happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>